Uh, hey, uh, my name is Tori. I am lead pastor, one of the elders here at the well. It's just good to be worshiping with you all. Uh, man, I, I'm being like, just to set the pace, uh, I deeply encourage when I hear the voices of God singing out to our God, uh, because it does something in my heart that reminds me about the beauty of God and who he is, uh, and really stirs up an affection for Christ and a desire to worship, to highlight him. And so uh, I mean this sincerely. Thank you for singing, uh, not just because of the way that it pleases and honors God, which is what we should be about, right? But also it literally stirs up me like you in singing actually lead me into worship along with our uh, worship team as well. And so I uh, just want to say thank you and uh, yeah, just get to uh, uh, worship God. I'm excited to do that today. All right. So uh, we are going to be wrapping up in Ephesians today. So uh, if you have your phones, you can pull those out. Uh, you can go to version underneath events. Uh, you can type in the well Austin. Uh, you can follow along that way uh, if you would like. There's all the notes, places, uh, the scriptures, all that stuff is there. Uh, if you don't have the version app, you can just actually take that link, put it right into your browser, and you can follow along that way as well. Uh, or you can turn your physical Bibles uh, open. Uh, the ushers are going to be coming down right now. And if you do not uh, have a physical Bible and want to use one today, if you would just raise your hand, uh, they're coming down the sides right now. They would love to give you one. Uh, if you do not own own a Bible, would you please take and keep that? That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word to be able to use it uh, during the week and things like that. So uh, we would love for you to to keep that um, and to be in the Word. All right? So we are finishing up Ephesians, but we will not be in the book of Ephesians today. All right? Y'all are like, what does that mean? Okay? Uh, we're going to be in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. Y'all are like, Revelation? Yes, people teach on that book. Ready? Uh, Revelation chapter 2, you can go there. Uh, and I love this for a lot of reasons. We'll jump into our text in a second. But uh, just as a, a context, what we have here is actually Jesus writing the letters uh, to churches uh, at large. And Jesus actually writes a letter to the church of Ephesus. And so... Uh, uh, that's what we're going to be reading because this is kind of the close of the book in a lot of ways. And so our study and the book of Ephesus closed, uh, uh, you know, 20 years prior, but then Jesus comes back around and he writes one more thing to them. And so before we dive into uh, the, the uh, Revelation verse, I want to read the last passage here in Ephesians because it will guide our time this morning. So stay in Revelation. It's on the screen. This is the very last thing that Paul says to this church. He says, grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So this is where the book ends, right? And then about 20 or 30 years later, we actually see Jesus Christ himself penning a letter to the church. And in Revelation 2, we actually see his words to her. And so Jesus speaks to seven churches here. And our boys at Ephesus, they're the first ones to get the letter, all right? And so that's what we'll be diving into. Revelation chapter 2. Let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So we immediately see a couple of awesome things about Jesus. First of all, we see this imagery of uh, stars and lampstands. And that's actually just imagery used from chapter one. Uh, Jesus was bestowed all of this glory in chapter one. They were highlighting the power of who he was. And so in each of the seven letters, he says something about himself that was originally said in chapter one. And so the stars, most commentators believe, are either the angels that are protecting each 
each local church, uh, or they are like the pastors or the elders that kind of lead that church as, uh, as a whole. And so either way, God places angels or pastors over the church for her protection and for her flourishing. Even more, though, it says that God holds them in his right hand. You see that there? And so God is intimate. He's close. He's holding them. But he's also in control at the exact same time, for they are in his hand. And so the lampstands then go on, and they represent the seven churches. That's why there are seven lampstands, because Jesus is about to write to the seven churches. The churches uh, called a lampstand, for they are the light of the world, we read in Matthew 5. They are the ones that showcase the light of our God. And so uh, this is who Jesus is writing to. So Jesus is over the angels, or their pastors, showing his protection, showing his sovereignty. But he also, it says, walks amongst the churches. Do you see that there? Right? He, he walks amongst the churches. And so uh, this means that he's intimate with each church. He's close. He's present. He's in her midst. He's walking around with her. You know, we often pray prayers like, uh, Lord, let your presence come. And that's not a bad prayer to pray, but we can actually see in the scriptures, his presence is already here. What often is happening is it's our own hearts that are blocking the reality of his already presence. And we should be praying for our own hearts to be awakened to his presence in our midst for Jesus is intimate and close with every single church. We need to be the ones that are anticipating his empowering presence more than asking for it to be here. For if we are a true church, then Jesus is walking amongst us. We are protected. He is over us. What this is showing us about Christ immediately is his omnipresence, right? This means that uh, he is all present. He's walking amongst each church and yet at the same time. And so he's individually walking with the church and then at the same time, he's uh, collectively present all at the same time. He's also omnipotent. His omniscience is on display here. This means that he is all powerful for he holds every single minister in his hand at the exact same time, it says. And it also actually shows us that uh, he's omniscient. This means all knowing. The way we know that is because at the start of each one of these letters, the first thing that Jesus says is, I know. I know the works you're doing. I know the things you're going through. I, I know. And so immediately, uh, we see that Jesus is all present amongst us. He is all knowing about us, and he is all powerful over us immediately uh, as individuals and as a church at large. So we see right off the bat that, yo, Jesus is kind of dope, right? In fact, if you have your physical Bible, it's just right next to verse 1. Jesus is dope, all right? And if you ain't into writing Nibonics in your Bible, then write, he's so awesome, all right? And both of those communicate the same thing, right? Like we see immediately every single church that Jesus purchased with his blood is intimate, special to him. He wants to be in her midst. He loves the church. He is not some disinterested deity or some absentee landlord, but our God is amongst us, present amongst us right now, friends. We get the opportunity to sing to God, not who's a billion miles away, but who is here with us in our midst, who is walking amongst us. This is beautiful. He is desiring to be intimately present with every single church and with every single individual within every single church. That means you right? Our God wants to be close. He is bestowing this love incorruptible. And so right off the bat, we can kind of stop and do like a little praise dance, right? <laughs> like our God is present, y'all. He wants this intimacy with us. Do you get that? Is that connecting with you? Because man, that's an important truth. God wants to be close to you. Do you believe that? Or do you think that this God that we serve is just deep, distant, not connected? He wants to be close, right? So then he goes on and he starts in verse two. He says this, I know your works, 
your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. If you jump down to verse 6 now, he also says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so, man, this church is killing it is what's happening here. In fact, Jesus gives this church three times more commendations or like applause than he gives any other church that he writes to because they are doing all these awesome things for God. In fact, he mentions nine of them in specific that they are doing, and they can kind of be broken down into three uh, distinct categories that, uh, that they're kind of serving the Lord in. The reason why these three categories are important is because they actually showcase a way for us to know how we can also be pleasing to God because, man, Jesus is clearly pleased with all the works that they are doing, right? They are unified with him. They are serving him. He says, hey, whoa, excuse me. I know you're doing these things, right? I see what you're doing here, and, and I love that, he's saying. And so we can actually get an insight about how we can also please God. In fact, if you're like me, one of your often prayers is like, God, how can I please you? What does it mean to, to please you? I want to serve you. What does this mean? Well, Jesus gives us three things that this church was doing that he was pleased with, right? First of all, it says that Jesus was pleased with their deeds, or Jesus is pleased with our deeds. We see them working and toiling for the Lord, it says, They're serving him in all these ways. He doesn't mention what specific labor is happening, but that word toil carries with it this heavy sense of of labor that, man, they are working really, really hard. They're tired at the end of their working, right? And so if you know, if you've ever been out uh, doing yard work for like all day and you just toil and toil and you're tired and then you come inside and like a peanut butter and jelly tastes good, you know what I mean? Like it tastes like you're at Ruth's Chris because you're so tired, you just want anything, Like that toil is there, and so that's actually what they're doing for the Lord, it says. They have this hard labor. They're not lightly or loosely serving God. They're after it. And so he says, hey, look, this is not in vain, Jesus is telling them. I see these works that you're doing. These are awesome works that you're doing for me. I I am pleased with these works. And so Jesus is present walking amongst them, seeing all the things that they are doing. This should give us confidence because, friends, if you are serving the Lord, then your efforts are not in vain either. Even if nobody ever acknowledges you or ever sees you uh, publicly amongst men, you can know that your God sees you and that he's pleased with it and that he is able to uh, lift you up, encourage you within that. And so, man, let this word be a word of encouragement for us. I would also say that we should be a people that should be speaking that identity and speaking that truth to each other. And so where you're seeing somebody that is serving well, you should honor them in that service and say, man, I see what you're doing. You're killing it. Thank you. And the Lord sees what you're doing and he is pleased with you. We need to speak that reality into each other. But this is what is happening. Our king sees them, and he is pleased with them. The second thing that we see Jesus is pleased with is actually our dedication, right? They are dedicated. You see here that they are enduring. In fact, he mentions that twice. It says that they are bearing for his namesake. They are not growing weary. They're in this for the long haul. They are steadfast. God is pleased as we long suffer for his name. All throughout the scripture, there is a mentioning of how we should be Uh, persevering in God, and that's another sermon for another time, but God is pleased with long-suffering. This is especially important in this context because this church wasn't just serving uh, freely, but they were actually serving amidst a lot of persecution and hostility from that culture at large. In fact, Chuck Swindle, who's a pastor up in Dallas, he, he says this. He says, the Ephesian Christians face special challenges 
Because they refused to bow the knee to the goddess Diana or the images of the emperor, they found themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted, and abused. Christians in Ephesus would have been the objects of physical violence, social ostracism, and economic repression, yet they endured. They bore up under the load. Clearly, Ephesus had been taught well by its predecessors, Paul and Timothy and John. And so one of the challenges for us to think about is, hey, are we long-suffering, or do we kind of bail out as soon as it gets a little bit hard because Jesus is pleased with our dedication. He sees it, it pleases him. The third thing that we see that Jesus is pleased with is their doctrine, it says. It says that they uh, stood against anybody who preached a different gospel there in verse 2. Then in verse 6, he says that you hate the Nicolaitans, right? The Nicolaitans was a group at the time that tried to take the, uh, the paganism of the world and blend it in with the doctrine of Christianity. And so they tried to have the world and Jesus at the same time, but that doesn't work. You cannot have the world and Jesus at the same time. And so they were a Against this work in a lot of ways. And God says, hey, I, like, this is a good thing. I hate this as well. You cannot pick and choose what you want about Jesus, right? He is a friend, and that is very true of us. And I think oftentimes what we get in our head is uh, this, this old buddy Jesus, right, that's like dancing through the lilies and like carrying a baby lamb, right, looking all soft and gentle. But here he says, I hate those works. Like that's a strong language, right? Why? Well, because Jesus isn't just a friend, but he's also the master and the Lord and the Savior and the King who wants to rule every aspect of our hearts. And this King loves us enough to be jealous for his own glory and for your joy. See, because anytime you try to mix in and add to the words of Jesus, you are not going to have more joy. That joy will be stolen from you for only our Lord actually gives true and pure joy at its uh, fullest extension. And so God God is for his glory, yes, but also for your joy in anything that takes away from that. He hates friends because he loves you. He loves you this much to detest the things that would steal uh, your joy from him. And the Nicolaitans were trying to do this. And a lot of times in our culture, we see that reality where you want to pick and choose what you like about God. But if you pick and choose what you like about God, then you are no longer serving God. You're serving a God that you made up in your own head, which means you're just serving yourself. And so we have to realize this, that doctrine is actually important. And the Ephesian church had solid doctrine, right? They were in, like, like serving the Lord. And so uh, doctrine is important. They had it. Dedication is important. They had it. Deeds are important. They had it. Like, man, they are just grinding it out for the king. They are serving God. Amen? Amen. But if you cheated a little bit and you read the verses that we skipped, you would know that that's not the full picture, Right? And so here's what we get, pick it back up in verse 4 once again, because masked in between this love sandwich that Jesus gives, he speaks some hard truth to them, right? Our God will encourage you where you are succeeding, but our God will also challenge you where you are slipping. And he challenges the church here. He says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, From where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Man, like imagine how hard those words would be to hear from our maker. Like imagine if Jesus came down right now and said, man, the well, you're killing it, right? You're doing this and this and this. But I have this against you, against you, a strong words, right? And so Jesus all of a sudden now speaks this heaviness into this church in a lot of ways. 
Isn't it crazy that they can hate the works that would take people away from loving Jesus, and yet they cannot love Jesus in the process? And if we are not careful, we are prone to do the exact same thing. This church of Ephesus, which was known, by the way, for its love for the Lord. If you've been with us in our Ephesians series, in chapter 1, Paul prays about their love. In chapter 3, Paul prays about their love. In chapter 4, he talks about how they're bearing with one another in love. And on and on and on and on again. And then at the very end of the book, he says that he prays this grace that they would have a love incorruptible. Like, this church was known for their love. And somewhere in the process, that incorruptible love actually got corrupted at least in their own hearts, right? And they were no longer loving God like this. And friends, this is a terrifying reality because unless we think that we are so much better than the church of Ephesus, then we have to believe that in the same way they lost their love for the Lord, that we are able to lose our love for the Lord as well. We have to know the condition of our hearts to sing along with the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to do this in this reality, and God has this against them. I mean, think about the heritage of the church of Ephesus. Paul planted it. Timothy was a pastor over it. Priscilla and Aquila were deacons within it. The apostle John was an elder over it. Like, if you know these names, this church had a heritage, y'all. What a heritage, right? And what a danger at the exact same time. For it seems like they are living off a second-generation church that is living off the works that the original apostles started. And while they are maintaining those works, somewhere along the way, they begin to operate out of duty and obedience rather than out of intimacy and passion. Somewhere along the way, they begin to lose that, lose that love. And friends, man, we're tempted for that. Like, man, gosh. Uh, man. I I desperately, friends, desperately want you to get this. There is nothing, nothing, there is nothing more important than your affection and then your love for Jesus, friends. This church was killing it, y'all, killing it. And somewhere along the way, they lost that love. They lost that intimacy. They, They lost that connection. And not everything, everything inside of me just wants so desperately for that to never be true of any individual in here, that you would maintain the love that you have for the Lord, the zeal that you have for the Lord, that we would be a group of people and individuals who desperately love Jesus, who do what it takes to find that affection. God is after our hearts, and that is what he cares about most. Paul prays for this grace at the end of Ephesians. He prays that they would grow in this love. See, this church did not have a head problem. They had right doctrine. They did not have hand problems. They were doing the right things. They had a heart problem, right? Somewhere along the way, they they lost this deep connection to God. In fact, an easy way to remember this is that deeds does not equal devotion, or deeds are no substitute for devotion, right? Our holiness or our purity is no substitute for our passion, or our uh, labor is no substitute for our love. All these things are the left, are awesome and good, and we should be doing it, but they do not equal the thing that God is after the most, which is our heart, our affection, our love for him. This is what God longs for. He wants your heart, friends. He is walking among amongst you, intimate with you, holding you in his hand, showering you with protection because he wants your love, your heart. He wants to be close. 
In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, this is the great commandment, right? And they're trying to kind of tempt Jesus and trick him and say, hey, hey, what is the great commandment? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind, with everything, right? And how often are we, like the church of Ephesus, tempted to not actually fulfill that commandment? We are tempted to also lose our first love, to be serving him and yet at the same time have no affection for him. You know, we see a church that 20 years later is in a lot of ways like a loveless bride, right? You see it a lot in marriages where all of a sudden kids come in or, or, or work comes in or, or a little bit of struggle comes in or it doesn't always go as we want it. And slowly but surely that marriage begins to lose its affection, its love, its intimacy. They're all of a sudden then are a wellspring with no rain, right? They're, they're a riverbed with no water running through it. The form is there, the substance is there, and yet the power that actually carries it, gets lost somewhere around the way. And this church is a lot like a loveless bride, a loveless groom in a lot of ways, where somewhere along the lines, they're still married, they're still performing the functions and the actions, but there is no intimacy. And God is after your intimacy, for he is a groom who longs to be intimate with his bride. And this is where we see in this church, and we can be like this too, friends, if we're not careful, if we're not careful. In fact, just as a, as a thought, right, how many people do you know who were loving the Lord at age 20, right, killing it, sold out for our God, and then by age 50, they may still be in church, they may still be serving in church, they may still be, but their love begins to run cold, right? Kids get in the way, jobs get in the way. Now listen, not everybody, we have people in this church who are, have been running with the Lord for 20, 30, 40 years. And if you know them, you should ask them, how did you maintain this love? Because if you think about it, that list that you have in your head of people who love Jesus more now that they're 55 than when they were 20 is probably pretty low, right? At some point along the way, they began to lose that love. Friends, we are fooling ourselves if we do not think that at some point along the way, we can so easily lose this love that we have for the Lord, right? We can all of a sudden begin to get caught up in our heads and our hands and lose the very thing that God is after. God is after our affections, not just our actions. He longs for us in this way, right? And the trick within this is, is this doesn't just happen in a moment, right? It's not like today we're like, oh, come to the altar. And tomorrow we're like, ah, I'm a servant children. I guess, right? Like it doesn't happen like that, right? It's this gradual, slow but steady process where sin gets in the way, where all of a sudden you're not spending that much time in the Word anymore, where babies interrupt your serving or your job interrupts your fellowship and your community. And all of a sudden, all these things begin to pull away and we find ourselves still performing the deeds that God wants, but not having the devotion that God wants. And we lose our love in the process. Slowly but surely, friends, and this is where we can find ourselves. We can be the church of Ephesus. We are tempted to do that as a church, the well, and as individuals. In fact, I love what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. He says, one thing that I have asked from the Lord that I will seek after 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to know, to gaze, to inquire, to look at your beauty. Is this what your heart sings? Remember, this is a song to God. Is your heart singing these realities to God? Is is this what your heart is truly after, right? Like, listen, obedience is not a bad thing, friends. Like, sometimes you need to obey despite the feeling not being there, right? Like, I can't tell you how many times I would much rather, like, Netflix and chill than hang out with somebody. You know what I mean? Okay, I'm the only one preaching myself. Well, that's true of me, right? Like, I don't really want to do these things for the Lord all of a sudden. So, but then I'll be obedient. I'll say, I'll, I'll do what I need to do. And then I come out the back end of it, and I'm like, man, I'm so glad I did that right? Are y'all in the same boat? I'm so glad that I went to that group. I'm so glad that I spent time in the word. I'm so glad that I prayed, right? And so, man, sometimes obedience is good, but God, man, save us if we never have a true kindling in our hearts. If all we are doing is loveless obedience, God is actually after our love, right? And so listen, friends, it doesn't have to look like this, right? It doesn't have to look like you're ready to like punch this speaker off the stage because you're excited about God, okay? Like maybe your love is, a, is an inward, a, a, a slow, a quiet love, right? But is there some sort of flame there? Is there some sort of intimacy desired? Is there some sort of connection with God that you long to have for this is what Jesus is about, right? I mean, even think about all of the craziness that, uh, that, that Jesus is saying here. Like, this is kind of wild because what he says is, hey, I see all the works that you're doing. You're serving. You're, you're dedicated. You're, you're right doctrine. You're killing it. You're killing it. And yet I really don't care about any of that, relatively speaking, to how I want your heart. In fact, I want your heart so much so that I would be willing to close down that church if it meant you and your heart returning to me in the process. Think about the wild statement that that is. Like, they're killing it, right? And Jesus is like, that's awesome. Keep doing those things. I don't want you to not do those things. But what I care about far more than all of your deeds is your affection for Jesus. And so I will shut it down. I will close the light stand, the lamp stand. I will, I will snuff it out. I will close these doors. If that means I get your heart back, I will do what it takes for what Jesus is after far more than our hands is our hearts. He wants your love. This is a God who longs to be intimate with you. I mean, and this also speaks to the character of our God, does it not? Like, he lets you serve him. He doesn't need you to serve him, but he wants your heart in the process. In fact, every other God, if you think about it, demands your obedience and demands your service, and that's the way that you please that God, but not our God. Our God says, you could be doing all these awesome things, and yet if you don't love me, I'll close all that down. I don't need you to serve me, right? I, you get to serve me. I want you to serve me, but I want your heart. I want this intimacy. This is a God who is not just ruling and commanding over you, but he wants to be a husband of you, us, the bride of Christ. He wants intimacy, friends. Do you believe? believe that? Are you experiencing that? Are you intimate in this way? This is what our God is after. Our hearts, our love. Do you believe this? Is this where your heart is? Is this what God is doing in and through you in these ways? Is this how your affections are being stirred up? How your heart is being kindled? Is this where you're at? In fact, here's what I would encourage us to do. Right now, I know it's weird, we're in the middle of a sermon, right? But I want us to take just a couple of moments and just ask the Holy Spirit, right? Say, God, am I, am I loving you? Where am I at on this? Begin to convict me of ways that I am losing that love, 
right? Speak to me. Show me how I'm not affectionate with you. Maybe you're feeling the weight of these words already. Begin to allow Jesus to speak the kind words over you that he longs to be intimate with you. He doesn't even demand it. He longs for it, friends. He, he wants to be close. And so spend a minute in silence. I know it's weird. We're in the middle of a sermon, but send a minute. Just pray and just ask God to begin to speak to your heart, to challenge you, to convict you about where you may be even right now. He wants intimacy, friends. He wants a relationship. He's not just a deity who's distant. He's a husband, right? The Lord, our maker, who longs to be close. Do you have those affections for God? You can truly know him in this way. He can walk amongst you and with you, as we see even at the beginning of this letter. He wants a relationship with you. And can I be honest with y'all, right? Like, like this is hard, right? Like this is hard to maintain because there are so many things that are after our love that we can give our love away to other gods, to lesser gods that do not satisfy as much as our God does, but we can easily give that away. Like, can I just, can I make a confession real quick, right? Like, like I feel so often, I, I, I will tell you what my mistress is against Jesus, right? Jesus longs to be a husband who's close and I end up committing adultery on him with his own bride, the church, the well, right? And so rather than being intimate with Christ and, and having that marriage, that relationship, that intimacy that he longs for, I end up ju- ju- using my time, my devotion, my energy on his bride, on the church, on myself. It, it's kind of crazy in some ways, right? That I would cheat on Jesus with his own bride, and yet I am so tempted to do that, and that's actually exactly what the church of Ephesus was doing, for they were serving the Lord like crazy, but they were, they were building up the church, and yet they were not connected to God in the process. And so I tend to work hard for the church and labor and toil and, and get tired and, and weep and, and mourn and, and burden and think about it. And I forget about the hard work of loving my Savior first and foremost, right? In fact, if you want to keep me accountable for it, I'll tell you one of the easiest ways that I've found that I can realize I'm doing this. If in the morning I go to my inbox and I'm more worried about cleaning that out before I spend time in devotional life with my Savior Jesus, you can know that I'm cheating on him with his own bride. I promise you that. I've learned it over and over and over again. And every morning I'm tempted to start working and working and working because in some ways I long for your affection more than his affection for me. In some ways I learn to, uh, God, I want to serve you. I want to show you how much I dedicate I am to you. So I'll, I'll work and work and work and labor and labor. Look at me, God, aren't you pleased with me? And God says, I want your affections like a marriage where you're maybe buying flowers and sending chocolates and writing cards and yet you're never present with your spouse, that's not going to be a marriage that succeeds. And we can do all these things for God. And if we're never present with our true husband, Jesus, then we're just committing adultery, friends. You have a mistress and it will not add joy into your life. In fact, KB, who's one of my favorite uh, Christian rappers, he has a song that's actually about this very thing. And in the song, he's talking about his struggle and this intimacy that he longs for with God, right? He says this, he says, struggling, oh, I be struggling. My idols are mimicking Jesus. I bury my sin in three days, it's back up again. In the beginning when, in the beginning when, we would give anything, value for ministry, mission and bigger things. You can take anything, you just give me the king. But that fire faded, now I just want to retire with savings. 
And all of a sudden we see this, right? KB keeps going on talking about his struggle throughout the song. Later in the song, he's resolving to love the Lord. And he says, because no way I'm going to die slow. No way I'm going to die slow. Won't break, I will not fold. Cancel my tour, not my soul. I'll go blindfold in and out of time zones. What is he saying? I will blindly follow Jesus wherever he tells me to go, as long as it is him that I am with. For I will cancel my tour, not my soul. And I often sing that song, and I almost always weep at that point because instead of the word tour, I just replace it with the word church. I say, ooh, I say, I will cancel this church, not my soul, right? And whatever your idol is, you should probably replace it right there too. And in deep irony, that's the very thing that Jesus is promising to do. He says, I will cancel this church before I let you lose your love for me. Church of Ephesus, I love what you're doing, but I will close it down right? Before I let you lose this love that you have for me. I love your works. I love your labor. I will close down the light stand, right? I will close it down, right? This is what I want from you, okay? And so, man, this is uh, uh, where we need to be at with God, right? He wants your heart. He wants your love. And so what do we do about this? Because all of us, if we're honest, we're tempted to lose this love. We're tempted to work for the church. We're tempted to work for ourselves. We're tempted to serve other gods. And so what do we do? Well, actually, Jesus actually gives us the answer here in this very text. If you go back to, uh, to verse 5 again, he actually says it. He says, hey, uh, remember where you were and then repent, right? Think about where your love was before and then go back to that. In fact, often we uh, think about the word repent and we always associate it with sin, but the word repent just means to turn around, okay? And so what Jesus is saying is, you were here, you did have this intimacy with Christ, and then all of a sudden you started running this way. You were going over here, stop, remember how awesome it was back there, turn around, repent, and go back to the love that you had at first. Remember your zeal for the Lord, Remember your love for the Lord. Remember your intimacy with God. This is what I want. Go back. Rekindle that love. How do you rekindle the fire in a broken marriage? Well, you begin to date your spouse again, and you say nice things about your spouse, and you dream about the future together with your spouse, and you text your spouse in the middle of the day that, hey, I love you. I miss you. I'm glad we're together. And you begin to rekindle this original passion that you had before. How do you rekindle your fire with your true husband, with your true maker, God? Will you do the things you did before. When you first came to God and you were longing to go to church, you were longing to read and to to learn and to know more. You wanted to be built up in this love, friends. This is what we go back to, right? I actually love that God says we love him with all of our heart and soul and mind, because if you look at this, right, and think about what he's saying there, he says, remember what you do with your head, love the Lord God with all your mind, right? And you repent, what you do with your heart. This is love the Lord God with all your heart. And then you uh, go back to the original works. That means all of you is dedicated to God. You love him with your soul. That means all of your being. You go back to where you were at first. In fact, the, the Greek word there for remember uh, would probably be better translated, keep on remembering. It's a present imperative, which means it's a, a continual action. And so over and over and over and over and over and over again, remember this intimacy that you have with the Lord. Take inventory of your heart frequently, where are you at now versus where you were before, and long to love Jesus. Is it fading or is it burning and is it getting stronger? God wants like a good husband for your marriage to get stronger and stronger and stronger with him. And so how do you do that? 
Well, man, he's given us a slew of ways to be able to do that, right? The word or worship or prayer or evangelism or discipleship or fellowship or corporate worship or silence and solitude or nature or confession or on and on and on and on it can go. God wants our hearts. He's given us 900 ways by which we can find him in it. And he just wants you, friends. He's given you all these ways and he wants you because there is nothing that's more important, nothing. In fact, let's finish our text. In verse seven, he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This warning is not just for Ephesus, but it's for all. Hence the plural churches at the end of that there. He's speaking to all of us. The church is there and the church is in the future, right? He also then says, hey, listen to what the Holy Spirit says, right? The Spirit is going to speak, okay? Elders, pastors, staff members, leaders, community group shepherds, are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Are you listening to what he's saying about our church, about your own heart, about our people who make up the church? Do you know what God is calling us into? And are you walking into that? And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. What are the implications? That I can preach my little heart out up here and I can cry and weep and mourn and kick over the speaker and it doesn't matter, right? Because we have to have an ear to hear. Will you listen, friends? The whole book of Ephesus told us how to love our God, how to serve him, how to know him, how to be intimate with him. Are you listening? Do you take the words that are said and do you apply it into your life? Do you think about God often? Are you connected with it? I mean, some of us probably won't heed this warning. Some of us will not have an ear to hear and we'll kind of ignore this or we'll think that we're totally fine and we'll ignore the, the scary warning that we can lose our love. And I so desperately long and pray and desire that that would not be true of any individual up here, right? That all of us would have this love, that all of us would have this intimacy. And now... Okay, you may be feeling it, right? Because maybe you know your heart is like mine and you feel that you're losing this love. Maybe you feel that you're not disconnected. Man, maybe you've never experienced this love in the first place. You don't know what it's like to be intimate with the, the God of the universe. You've never had that relational experience. Maybe you don't have that connection to God, right? And the temptation would be in this moment for all of us to go out and to do a bunch of things to try to help us to love God more, but then we'd be the church of Ephesus again, right? We'd be doing a bunch of things and lacking the true heart motivation behind it. And so what is the answer then, right? How is it that we do these things? Well, Ephesians showed us over and over and over again that what the remedy always is, is the gospel, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. For in Jesus, we actually see something far more profound than the awesomeness of the church of Ephesus. Because go back through this church and begin to think about it. Jesus was the true and greater Ephesus, the true and greater church in some ways. For he's the one that toiled. He's the one that endured. He's the one that preached the truth in love. He's the one that hated false doctrine, flipping over tables when it prevented worship to draw people in. He's the one that did all of these deeds, right? Jesus fulfilled all the things that they were filling and even that much more to perfection. And yet at the same time, our Jesus is also one who showed us the beauty of the gospel because even if our hearts were beginning to lose affection for him, your God has never lost his affection for you. 
James chapter 4, verse 5 says that he is jealous over you. He longs for you. He will do what it takes to, to find you, right? We sing the song Reckless Love because in our ways, in our eyes, in some ways, it almost seems reckless. He'll, he'll do what it takes. He'll, he'll count the cost for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This is Jesus who has never lost his affection for you. And so even when you were an enemy of God, even when you turn your back on God, he has never turned his back on you. And so even if you are like the prodigal son that has run far, far away from God, he is like the prodigal father who will do what it takes to bring you back. He's the one that leaves the 99 to go find the one. And as you come returning, he will run out and he will greet you and he will embrace you for our God loves you, friends. Our God loves you. This is the beauty of the gospel. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And so even if you've lost that love, God has not lost his love for you. And so now we can believe this. And as we begin to believe the gospel, it actually changes our heart's posture from the inside. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see his work at the cross for us. And it actually stirs up our affection to not just want to love God, but to also be doing the work of God. To be serving him and honoring him because we are now motivated by his love, not out of our guilt or our trying to please him. But we see how much he loves us. In fact, in John chapter 6, I, I love this passage. John chapter 6, uh, they're, they're asking Jesus this question. And he says this, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe. All right? You believe in him, right, who he has sent. Me. You believe in me, Jesus says. The Father has sent me. You believe in me. This is the work is your heart growing in this affection for God? Is your heart growing in this gospel posture? Are you connected with the God of the universe? I love this, friends, because this should compel our hearts to love God. So where are you? Will you be like the church of Ephesus, right? Lose that love for God? Or will you do what it takes, friends? Gosh, please do what it takes. Please do what it takes. Do what it takes. There is nothing like knowing and loving our God. I want to close with this. I want to read a quote from Daniel Aiken. He's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He says this. He says, tell me what you think about, and I will tell you what you love. Tell me what you talk about, and I will tell you what you love. Tell me what excites you, and I will tell you what you love. My prayer for you, as well as for myself, is that the answer will be the same for all of these. May the answer always be Jesus. May we be a church who has such an insatiable desire for Jesus, we cannot be satisfied with enough of him. More than planting churches, more than sending missionaries, more than raising up leaders, would we love Jesus? This is what he wants of us. I love you guys. Let's pray.